You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 108 is famed California bass player Mike Watt, who started in the early 80s with the Minutemen, very influential punk band. They had about a dozen releases, but then frontman D. Boone died in a car accident. Mike, along with drummer George Hurley, continued with a new guitarist as Firehose, who released five albums between 1986 and 1993. You're right now listening to Walking the Cow, with Mike singing on it from Fly in the Flannel, Firehose's fourth album from 1991. Today we're going to dip briefly back to the Minutemen days with a quick song called the Bob Dylan Wrote Propaganda Songs from the album What Makes a Man Start Fires, 1983. Then turn to Mike's solo career, starting with The Boiler Man from Contemplating the Engine Room, that's 1997, and then play three little bits of his 2011 album, Hyphenated Man. Now, he's only really had four solo albums, but he's been involved in and even a chief songwriter in numerous projects. So we're going to get some samples of those. We'll discuss I Got Marty Feldman Eyes by a band called Big Walnuts Yonder, their self-titled album from 2017, and we'll conclude by listening to Yeah, We're Gonna Learn to Fall by a band called Jumpstarted Plowhards from the EP Round 1, 2019. I'm going to provide links to a lot of Mike's other material in the blog post corresponding to this episode at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, so make sure to head over there. You can get the definitive account of everything Mike has been doing at mikewatch.com. And if you want to support this podcast and get access to our ad-free feed, please head to patreon.com slash nakedly examined music now the sound quality in this interview is a little below average for me hopefully that won't be too intrusive enjoy for the intro i'll play a little bit of walking the cow from fire hose from flying the flannel 1991 since that was the album that introduced me to you your major label debut i know that fire hose was in insofar as it was possible to be a continuation of Minutemen. There's some continuity there. We're going to get pretty quickly to Bob Dylan wrote propaganda songs from the Minutemen's What Makes a Man Start Fires album. That was a strange Minutemen record. That's the only one where I wrote all the music. I was having knee surgeries at the time, and each one was nine months in the cast, and so I had a little time. I used a pick. I'm kind of playing almost like rhythm guitar. My bass style is strange on that record. Yeah, nice, interesting chordal riff there to start. Yeah, there's a lot of them on that record. That's the first time the Minutemen went over two minutes. There's a song on there called The Anchor. few songs on that record that are almost exactly a minute. Well, this is not one of them. This is a minute and a half.
So do you want to say a little about how these old Minutemen songs were structured seems, I guess what I'm most interested in figuring out how you take is the connection between the poet and the riff guy. We've got a lot of very cool bass riffs. This one, very distinctive, in fact, chordal, which is pretty unusual. So, you know, often it just sounds like mud down there hitting more than one note at a time. But it totally works in this setting. Lyrics come first, riff come first, any sort of rule? It's usually the title, and then I bring the music and the words to it. Yeah, I guess I heard with this one that it was a comment on your own increasingly political writing, and then you're like, oh, well, if Bob Dylan can do it, it should be okay for me. Yeah, it's sort of like that. Some kind of validation. What connects the two? Like, there's that sentiment, and then there's the delivery of it as a punk song, which it's kind of a funny thing to, you know, you think of these overtly political songs, you know, fuck the system, blah, blah, blah. But you're explaining yourself. I'm waiting and diversifying. I'm collecting, dispersing information. That's almost kind of a subverting, making fun of the punk format, that you're doing something fundamentally introspective, but with that same black flag sort of delivery. Uh, Yeah, I never thought a punk is really a style of music or lyrics. It was a kind of state of mind and uh, introspection. I wrote half the words on that record. T-Boom wrote a quarter. Georgie wrote a quarter. Those guys probably wrote better words than I did. DeBoon, he said the political thing about the Minutemen was the way we did the instruments. Uh, He played real trebly so the drums and the bass could be more heard. He called the lyrics more thinking out loud. I like that idea. You're the fourth component, the spiel, right? Because there's the bass, there's the guitar, there's the drums. You're trying to build a boat that floats. Given that your lyrics are so central in some ways, do you really see it as... You know, it's 25% of what's going on. In other words, that seems to fit with the kind of punk ethic that you can mix them low. It's okay if you don't understand them the first time because 75% of what you're supposed to hear is that ensemble, is that energetic instrumentation. And if you get anything out of lyrics, it's sort of a bonus. At the end of the day, it's out of your hands. It's in the listeners or the gig goers' hands. You know, there comes a point where you just have to let it go. It's kind of like, you know, raising a kid. It starts to have a life of its own. Like, I can play this song now with the young guy I'm bringing on tour, Nick Aguilar. Song written many years before he was even born. But it can make sense because it kind of has a life of its own. I can give you some insights into why I wrote it and stuff, but I don't know if I can uh, entirely explain it. Well, let's just throw another tune out there. <laughs> we can always circle back to this, since the Boiler Man is about the whole Minutemen experience. And it's got a similar, you know, it's five minutes long, so it seems like it should be a totally different thing. But there's, of course, a few more parts to it. It's got verse, pre-chorus, chorus, and some different, very much not black flag, not traditional punk elements to it. The context is much different. Bob Dylan wrote Propaganda Song is on a collection of songs. Boiler Man is actually one part of one big song where I'm trying to talk about the Minuteman using my father's life in the Navy. Bob Dylan wrote Propaganda Song is actually one riff until you get to the coda. The verse and the chorus are the exact kind of music. Musically, it's kind of static, and it's the words that are moving around. Giving Nels Klein D. Boone's guitar and asking him to play a solo for him. Uh, His brother gave me two of his guitars, and I brought one of them in there for this song. Because the Boiler Man in the first opera is D. Boone. Georgie, of course, is Fireman Hurley, and I'm the machinist mate. To run an engine room, you got to get the fire up, you got to boil the water, and then you got to get to the screw. And so that's what the metaphor and the allegory I used. 
that tree Had the curling wire Boy, how that spiel inspired Knocked me out, now I was slave Changed forever from that day Sang to me some Creighton song I was a man from then on I'm a lucky man Know that man, hell of a man, boiler man Boil, boil, boiler man Biographical. I'm talking about how I met D. Boone. I talk about him jumping out of the tree on me. You know, there's a documentary called We Jam Econo. I talk about this. In fact, I think I show the tree. They tore it out now. Bob Dylan wrote propaganda songs. I'm writing this while he's alive. I'm writing The Boiler Man after he's gone. To me, these are big differences, but there are similarities. Well, and also just musically, I just think it's really instructive listening to 
like the really short Minutemen tunes to make it less intimidating as to what constitutes a song. <laughs> and I don't want this to sound insulting because Minutemen is brilliant, but come up with a cool riff, come up with an idea, state it succinctly, there's a song. <laughs> there you go. We got the idea from this band called Wire. They had an album called Pink Flag, and that had a big influence on us. I mean, if you listen to the most songs, they're 30, 40 seconds, like some of our first ones. That, that's the band that had the most influence on us at the beginning. You know, when we first started, we were copying songs off records, Blue Oyster Cult and Creedence. You know, we never thought of music as a form of expression until the, uh, we became part of the movement. So we thought people might think we're too much like these bands we were copying off records. So we thought if we used an extreme kind of format like Wire did, somehow we'd find our own voice, even though we were using somebody else's device. And I still hear that in Boilerman, that it's still so much of it relies on that one cool riff. The, you know, that you just establish that. Like I said, the important thing of that tune is Nels Klein playing that guitar solo with his guitar. I was trying to set up a mood. When I made that record, Neither him or Steve Hodges, the drummer man, heard any of it. So they reacted to what I handed him. I, I really wanted to try a different way of making records with Contemplate in the Engine Room. And it was a very difficult subject for me to deal with, too. I'd never tried before that. The whole idea of losing people, especially uh, D. Boone, my father. I mean, it was a hard thing to talk about. But I thought I kind of owed somebody <laughs> something still running away from it, deal with it. It is the lick. Well, and it's such a fun, you know, for a sentimental remembrance song, such a fun way to do that, that you set up this groove. We've got a minute and a half of guitar solo before anything else comes in. Then you have the story. And then when we get to the chorus, it's this do, 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 you know, <laughs> that's like from a Breakfast Zero commercial kind of melody. I love that guitar part. So, So you're saying... Was this a single pass? I played the guys the song. Okay. <laughs> but for, I had an easel there, too, and I'm trying to put the whole story of the band in one day. You've got this device from Ulysses, Jim Joyce. It's all one day. So it starts at crack of dawn, goes all the way through midnight to, uh, I guess, dusk. You know, it's 24 hours. So this is kind of early still, and I gave each part a, a color. When you pull the CD out of the box, there's a wheel there, and it it shows it's kind of a cipher. I didn't spell it out because I wanted to keep some kind of mystery in it. But there's a device through all that thing. Even the tuning, I dropped the E string down to D. So I could go from D to D. Mm-hmm. D boom, you know. And a lot of the parts are very thematic on the bass. Like if you notice at the beginning. I reprise that at the end for the coda of the piece. It only has one part. It's missing the other part. It's just da 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 Well, all stuff is done on purpose. I'm trying to give dimension to these feelings I had about the subject, you know. Let me just play a little bit from about 2 minutes, 18 seconds in. Yeah, so you're going to have a second, much shorter solo here, but with this kind of whistling, like that sounds like it's in a totally different key. 
That's Steve Hodges spinning a tube. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's kind of a trippy percussion instrument in a way, right? He's spinning this tube, and it's making that sound, that whistle. Yeah, it fits with the whole, I guess, the ocean sort of sounds. I mean, just even this rolling, I mean, it's almost like a, you know, it's a 16th note, ticka, 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 you know, this rolling snare through the whole thing, but it's very mellow for that. You know, it's not wipeout. No, it's supposed to be like in the engine room, and it is supposed to be like on a boat. The van and the boat are supposed to be kind of the same thing. So what in that theme are the little chimes? When everything stops, you only hear the little chimes. We we're trying to make kind of an automated sense, but that was very organic. Mm-hmm. So we're not trying to exactly make an engine room. Even in the first part where we have machine sounds, I still wanted to be musically organic and not really use synthesizers or uh, rhythm boxes or stuff like that. It's just three guys playing because that's very important. Bass, drums, and guitar because that's what Minuteman was. So when you're doing something, the intro is just Nell's going, but then you've got these very choreographed little sections. How are you communicating with the other guys? I mean, are you just playing and letting them do it against you a few times and coming up with something, or do you have something more specific in mind? Yeah, I played it, and then I tell them the situation and the story. This is where I meet D. Boone. The part before it is uh, coming to Pedro, right? Pedro Bound. And I use the word bound has a couple meanings. It means you're headed for there, but it also means you're attached. I played up on that kind of contrast with that word. And then when I get to Pedro, of course, the person there with the most importance in my life was D. Boone. So the Boilerman is how I meet him. So I explained this to Hodges and Nels in the studio. I also told him it's kind of still early in the morning, like nine o'clock. I wanted that kind of sense of feeling. I wanted them to come up with stuff interpret my story through their drums and guitar playing mm-hmm. using maybe more narrative kind of ideas than musical. But in terms of like the actual stops. When I write songs on bass, they're not just one bass line. Sure. There are all kinds of parts. They can have choruses, and bridges, intros, codas. And that's what I did. I played all those parts on that opera I had written out, but I did not show them until it was time to do. I wanted them to have kind of immediate reaction a gut reaction so it wouldn't be too overthought and be like you said before shooting from the hip here they're given this motif to dance around these ideas they're trying to help me illustrate direction they're trying to follow that i'm giving them the way they handle their instruments is an honest reaction to that you can't really get that with a lot of practice and stuff but then you need guys that are very good with improvisation do you have any recollection sort of what take this was is this Take one or take 10, or were you sectioning it out? So it's hard to say. I just played the whole thing through. You know, I played a certain section, so they'd come up with some kind of parts. But that solo is the first solo. Mm. It's not a second take. Yeah, that's the first solo. You know, first I set it up with Hodges, so we got a rhythm session going. There is a rhythm guitar under there, uh-huh. strumming really lightly. Nels Klein, very intuitive player. Yeah, what about even the lengths of solos? Was that kind of at least predetermined? Just this funny idea of let's do the big one, which would normally be kind of after we've done a couple of verses and choruses, then we can have the big solo. No, just put it right up there at the front. Boilerman is the guitar player, so it's got to feature the lead guitar. That's the way I saw it. Making this like kind of a play, you know? So I'm introducing the characters. First is Dick Watt. It's Chief Watt, you know, who is actually Mike Watt. And then I bring in the boiler man, and then there's a fireman Hurley. I think it's the end of side one. Yeah, they're sailors, but they're also guys in the band. <laughs> well, 
Well, just in terms of the album continuity, I mean, the fact that you have this dramatic moment where everything stops at the end, the I love you, man. Maybe this is just a product of the transformation from vinyl to other forms. But the way I was listening to it, there's no break at all. Like immediately, Black Gang Coffee. So it's a funky bass riff. It just undermines in a a way that's consistent with the rest of the song. Even though it's got a lot of sentimental content, we're not going to dwell on that. This is not going to be a brooding thing. We're just going to go right into this like little funky thing immediately after the most dramatic. His mother says, you're going to have a band. And you're going to be the bass player. His mother puts me on bass. It's right away. So the Black Gang Coffee, Black Gang is a name for engine room people. Big part of that opera, too, was reading uh, Richard McKenna's The Sand Pebbles. And he talks about engine room culture. My pop, too, told me a lot of the stuff that went on in an engine room. And so I use that stuff in there as device. But the idea, too, that as soon as I meet him, my life has changed. It's like having your first cup of coffee in the morning. You, you wake up. Boiler Man, we're still waking up. It's right before the first cup of coffee. Of course, they're cooking it right on the motor, you know, so all the fucking fumes and shit in the coffee and kind of funny that way. But that's what I was trying to illustrate there. I didn't want it to sound like a collection of songs. That's what makes a man start fires is more like that. Interesting about what makes man start fires is I did put it together lyrically, all together, kind of coherent. Half of the first side is my words, then... Second half is Georgie's words. First half of the second size D Boone's words. Second half is my words. So I did kind of arrange them, but you know we weren't writing operas. <laughs> I had never done this before. Write a whole big song with different parts. Before we go on, we have to stop and talk about a sponsor, Mac Weldon. You fellas out there, or ladies that buy things for fellas, you need underwear, you need socks, T-shirts, I personally really needed to replace those slippers that I had ground down to nothing with big holes in them. Mac Weldon is all about making it easier to get really quality instances of these basic products. If you go to a department store, getting consistent fit and quality is really a game of roulette. So Mac Weldon started from scratch, engineered their own fabric to make sure the fit would be the same each time, obsessing over every stitch and seam until perfection is reached. Mac Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirt, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants, and more that you will ever wear. They even have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. So first, just go to the website, check out how well-organized it is, how easy it is to pick out things. For each product, the reviews that people left include the measurements of that person and how well the thing fit. So you can take out the guesswork, you can find somebody that is sized the same as you, and buy that size. So personally, I need a periodic inflow of t-shirts. So I've just ordered one from Mac Weldon. If this works for me, I'm going to order a whole bunch of them. They have many different colors. And I consider it great that the experience will then be replicable. It will not just be that I lucked out at a t-shirt that was on sale in a department store, and I don't know if I can get that exact thing again. No, they're all going to be engineered exactly the same every time. It's going to look good. It's going to perform well. I use these for layering, for working out, for just wearing all the time. And they've got a great return policy, specifically for underwear. They really want you to be comfortable. If you don't like your first pair, you can keep it. They're still going to refund you, no questions asked. So I'm hoping you will go to MacWeldon.com, look around, see if you're enticed. When you check out, enter the promo code EXAMINED, and that'll get you 20% off your first order. Again, that's MacWeldon.com, promo code EXAMINED. Now let's get back to it. Kind of was influenced by The Who on their first album, had a quick one, Wise Away. Me and D. Boone really liked that, so I was kind of trying to do a version of that, more than Tommy or something like that. 
Yeah, well, let's look at another example of that from you. I wanted to jump forward to Hyphenated Man 2011. It's going to play the first two tunes just in a row as they appear, Arrow-Pierced Eggman and Beak-Holding Ladder Man, because I just think those work really well. That was you know, a 45-minute song with 30 parts. <laughs> I was kind of revisiting the Minutemen. It was hard for me to listen to Minutemen after he was killed. But in 2005, these guys... Keith Sharon and Tim Irwin wanted to make this documentary We Jammy Connell. They asked me to talk about the history and the records and stuff, so I had to listen to them again. It was very bizarre and trippy, but I wanted to do it again, but I didn't want to steal from Georgie and Dee Boone, you know. I thought about the libretto. What happened was I was working with the Stooges, and we were in Madrid, Spain, and the hotel was right next to a museum called the Prado, and there's six or seven Hieronymus Bosch paintings there. For some reason, when I was a kid, I was interested in his strange paintings and dinosaurs and astronauts. Maybe they all went together. You know, same time I'm being asked to help on this documentary, it appeared to me they had the Garden of Earthly Delights. When I looked at it, you know, there's no glass or anything. You can go right up to it. And it reminded me of a Minuteman gig, like a lot of little things to make one big thing. And I thought, that's what I can do. I can make an opera out of these little imageries. They're kind of amalgamations or little put-together hybrids. What I think he was doing was visualizing aphorisms, you know. But there's this one creature whose nose is a trumpet. We do say blowing your own horn. There was stuff like that. So I just used those to tell my whole story, which for this piece, Hyphenated Man was being middle-aged punk rock. That was another thing I thought the Minutemen would never do because, I mean, we thought about old, kind of, don't want to be that. But we've never thought about middle age. So I thought that would make it different enough so it wouldn't be me just dick leeching off the Minutemen, but I could go back to playing with these little forms again. And so Arrow Pierce Man and the first two parts you're talking about, those are actual creatures in the paintings that I'm using as a libretto, you know, to tell my story. I think nine of the creatures are from Garden of Earthly Delights. Nine are from The Last Judgment. That's in uh, Vienna. And nine are from Temptation of St. Anthony in Lisbon. One of them is from the Stone Surgeon there in the Prado. One is off of Ship of Fools at the Louvre. Just like I used devices in the first opera. The second one, too, that was about me almost getting killed by the sickness. And what I used was Dante's Commedia. The hell was uh, getting sick. The healing was purgatory. And uh, Paradise was getting to play my bass and paddle my kayak again. I do these things to help me get my story across.
I'm glad you brought up the, the Who, the second one in particular, the beak-holding Letterman, that initial rift sounds just so Who-like and just really joyful. That record is strange, hyphenated man, in the fact that I wrote it all on D. Boone's Telecaster. And I can't play guitar very well, but Tom Watson, I made 30 demos and gave them to Tom Watson, and he learned how to play them good. <laughs> I'm using Minuteman kind of stuff. D. Boone was really influenced, well, a lot of Creedence, Lonjot and Fogarty, Buck Dharma from Blue Oyster Cult, but also a lot of Pete Townsend from The Who. Boom was a trippy kind of collection of those three guitar players. And then, of course, from the punk movement, people like Greg Ginn and uh, Kirk Kirkwood and Bob Mould and uh, overseas, you know, Garth in the pop group, Wilco Johnson from Dr. Feelgood. Dee Boom had a lot of influences, so I, I tried to show stuff like that. And I wanted the bass to come second. These were little devices to keep it from being too minute many, even though other people probably had other kind of significance. But for me, I had to have certain things going on, so I didn't feel like such a ticklish. Well, over 30 songs, you're going to get different emphases in different ones. It's 30 parts. It's one song. Here's another trippy thing on it. Like The first one had a very sad ending. Contemplate the engine. Beginning, middle, end. The second one had a happy ending. I lived, you know, but still beginning, middle, end. This one here, actually, if I had my way, you all 30 parts would have happened at the same time. Well, number one, it probably would have been impossible to do. And number two, it would be very short. <laughs> but really, I didn't want one after the other. In fact, I did make a big change. I took the middle one and put it at the end. I put wheelbound man at the end because if I put man, shit, man at the end, people think that summation, you know, that's putting it all together. I didn't want them to read that. I just want to acknowledge middle age is about reconciling things. And of course, some things can't be reconciled. They're just too fucked up. But you do have to acknowledge them. But I didn't know how to do it. I wanted to make that piece all middle, no beginning, middle, end, just all middle for middle, middle age. Let's go ahead and insert as a third part of this Wheelbound Man, which is the finale, so we can kind of give folks the large picture. Many men make up the man Thank mm-hmm. you. 
it was actually the hub. And what I put for the middle song was the only instrumental. And then I thought there should be no instrumentals. And I wrote a poem and that became a pin to the table, man. That became the hub. Those are the two big changes I made. Most of that stuff I, I wrote all in order, in sequence, because I wanted that to be. I wanted it like me looking in a mirror that was broken into 30 pieces. So all the glances are at once. And I try to write it that way. Wheelbound Man lyrics definitely work as a summation of the project. Yeah, it's supposed to be like a wheel. There is no end. You know, it just keeps spinning around. You know, life is a big classroom. Stop learning, stop living. That was the point of that piece. And I thought I could put that at the end instead of make it the hub. Put that at the end and maybe people won't get the wrong idea that I'm just a total cynic about the whole fucking trip. Finding all these images in a painting, you know, so that's cool to know the origin of that because I was trying to figure out, you know, some of these sound like they're autobiographical, but then like, what the hell does... (laughs) It's not just autobiographical, it's also a specific period. It's, I'm in my 50s, I just turned 50, I'm getting into middle age. I'm not a young guy in his 20s, minute man, but I am the same guy, but in a way I'm different because I have experiences. My body ain't as good either. You know, it's kind of wearing out. Another component was this idea of the Wizard of Oz and Dorothy. Not the book, but the movie. When she wakes up, you know, the farmhands. Mm-hmm. They're the things that were in her dream. And if you think about it, all that shit about getting medals and diplomas, validations and stuff. That's just like what you learn about when you get to middle age, that all that stuff really isn't maybe that important. It's Dorothy tripping on the way men try to prove to themselves they're men. I think that's a big part of the so-called middle age crisis. It doesn't really have to be a crisis. It's part of the journey. In some ways, it's not so bad. That's what, to me, part of the middle age crisis is. Trying to be a young man again, get the convertible and the teenage girlfriend or some bizarre shit. A lot of denial. So I was trying to actually embrace experience. For the second one, Beak Holding Ladder Man, you know, that's almost an instrumental. You've got this very tight Who-like very guitar-based melodic thing. And then, just as an afterthought, in fact, let me just play the little... Fumbling for putting on fucking ice skates. Funnel full of folly fitted firmly to hit. The message, the message is held in the beat. Speak. That one there is the only one Watson wrote a couple of little guitar solos in there. He followed all my guitar compositions. There's a couple solos in this one he invented, but that whole piece, Hyphenated Man, he used melodic kind of things. Those were all from my uh, lame-ass guitar playing. Is that addicting that once you get to the point of like, oh, I don't have to just use the bass to set up the song, but I can make the other parts myself as well? It's a short step to uh, programming and like just, you know, more wide scale arrangement. I did it Minuteman too. Mm-hmm. Song like History Lesson Part 2. I wrote that on the acoustic guitar. It's in, you can hear Velvet Underground if she ever comes now. I can anyway when I played that. So sometimes I used guitar. I don't use guitar much in composition, no. I don't have any plans to write a, another opera, let alone write it all on guitar. Again, this was just a once in a life thing. Or just like a more elaborate arrangement. I thought I saw one. You have so many side projects. Uh, I'm trying to remember one that maybe it was with Banyan or Cuz. I forget which which exactly one was it, but it had a horn arrangement and a whole just a whole big. Cuz is not Mike Watt. That's a collaboration between 
Duke and Mike Watt. And with collaborations, much different. These things, these operas, that's why I usually have my name in the band, Mike Watt the Black King, Mike Watt the Second Man, Mike Watt the Missing Man. I want you to know who to blame. These other things that don't have my name in it, they're more collaborations or I'm taking direction. Let's actually get to one of those collaborations for the third song that I wanted to talk about. It. I got Marty Feldman eyes from Big Walnuts Yonder. Yeah, Big Walnuts Yonder was, tell you how this project came. Young guitar man, uh, Nick Reinhardt from uh, Terramelos, Sacktown band. Met this guy and he really liked the first opera, Contemplating the Engine Room. And he wanted to know more about the guitar man. So I said, you want to know him? Play with him. So I asked Nels. Nels said, sure. He just said, just have him pick a drummer. So he picks Greg from Deerhoof, which by coincidence, a good friend of Nels Klein. So no problem. Asked Greg to be part of it. And I said, okay, well, I'll write eight songs. And Nels will write a song and Greg will write a song. You know, this same kind of thing I did with Nels for the first opera, right? I'll come in with the songs, except, of course, he had one of his own. But the other eight, he's never heard of before. So he'll get this first take feel, right? But Nick didn't want that. Nick wanted to hear him ahead of time. He wanted to come up with parts because he had never, he told me in his life, written songs. He didn't even call them songs. He called them bass lines. But he had never done it that way. You know, a lot of people, the bass, except maybe reggae or R&B, the bass is like the last thing put on a song. So to use it as a composition tool is kind of trippy for a lot of people. Some people, it's not enough information. It's like you wrote the song on the kick drum or the cymbals, you know. They had verses and chorus and bridges and intros and codas and things like this. But he calls them bass lines. I said, I kind of different of opinion. I think they're songs. <laughs> but there's something about not having as much harmonic information like a piano or a guitar because you leave a lot of space for your uh, collaborators. A lot of times, like I just did this with the Jumpstart Plowhards, right? Even right at the end of this Flipper tour, uh, two days I went to Plymouth and a band called Tripper. I, I had written nine songs on the bass. And what can you do with these? So it's like that I don't have the finished work in mind. It's more like my songs are like springboards or uh, launch pads. Bring these guys on board.
You know, another thing, I wrote all these songs to be instrumentals. We recorded all these with Tony Mamoni at Studio G in Brooklyn, three days. And then Nick says, we should have singing on these. These two uh, songs, write words and do the vocals, and I'll do the rest. And we ended up only with one instrumental. It was Nels Klein's song. I didn't imagine words, but I was put on the spot, and uh, so uh, I had to come up with a, a spur of the moment right away and sing it. Well, did you know, so when I was just like looking whether the lyrics were online, I guess I kind of knew about this, that there's a Silly Willy parody song called Marty Feldman Eyes based on the Kim Carn song, Betty Davis Eyes. Well, see, the thing about Marty Feldman, he could be serious as he could be, but he's still, because of his natural thing, right? He's going to look trippy. So that's why I, I used him as the image. Kim Carnes, not so much. Well, so this one in particular, because it was written to not have lyrics, it was a little hard to make out what you were saying because they're, you know, like a, a big, loud rock guitar band, punk band. They're kind of buried. They're not super compressed to kind of sit on the top of everything. You got to really sort of get into it. So what do you feel like the role of the vocal is here? Like I said, it was be the wish granter. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, Nick Reinhardt asked for words. So I said, okay, I'll do it for you. <laughs> We all three thought it was going to be an instrumental record. It was uh, Nick's idea. But, you know, that's what collaboration is about. There's a great freedom to overplay in fun ways when you don't think there's going to be words that you have to get out of the way of. That there's just this John Bonham, Keith Moon drumming throughout the song. A lot of fun energy packed into this. To even pick the two I was going to do, I didn't even pick. You know, I was assigned this one and the other one about the drawbridge any insight on how you even decided like how many lyrics to record like there's some big instrumental gaps later in the song which have a few words poked in here and there repeating things you've said earlier but it's still letting the instruments have their dueling solos was it just kind of obvious the way the recording came out like okay this is the place i can fit verses here of course i had to make decisions they're way after the fact it was recorded and greg uh, the drummer man's the guy who mixed it yeah, I'm always interested in those bands that do that. I guess like the last Talking Heads record and there's plenty of other, I think most of what R.E.M. ever does of like, let's just do a self-contained instrumental thing. And then perhaps weeks later, somebody comes along and like, well, what mood does this inspire me to come up with a story to go over that and, and figure out where the lyrics actually fit? Obviously the melody, since it's coming so much after the vocal melody, wasn't the central thing in the way it sort of paradigmatically is in so many songs. I don't know, I, I think of it as kind of as the Zeppelin thing. This record actually sounds really coherent, surprisingly coherent. Okay, I wrote 80%, right? I wrote eight of the songs, so eight of the songs have the same foundation. And then the Nels song, the big instrumental, it has a life of its own. But all four of us are in a studio three days, and so I think that makes it kind of sound similar, too. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to play the ukulele on this one. Okay, I'm going to play... You know, the tube. I stayed on the bass. Nell stayed on the guitar. A lot of the interaction was between the two guitars. It was me and Greg setting up a good tight rhythm thing. Remember, this is the first time Greg and Nell's hear the, the music. Mm-hmm. Here Nick's been working out parts and stuff. Nell's has it. But then they're also playing together. Uh, trippy communication they, they had between each other. They each were using 30 pedals, lots of uh, stomp boxes and it was very interesting, the, the interaction between the guitar players. And it wasn't like, now I play, now you play. They're playing together. So I assume it's Nick is the more 
kind of sustained. There's a place where they pass off. Let me just play here where it sounds as pretty obviously that like, okay, now Nell's solo is starting because it sounds very much like what was coming out in Boiler Man in terms of that much less effect driven, more notes. <laughs> Yeah, I could tell Nails a style big time. But a lot of it was them playing together to make a third thing. It wasn't like a competition. They were actually putting together a third from two ones. So the reason that we're doing this at all right now is because you're promoting this Jumpstarted Plowhards. Yeah, but it's the same kind of concept where I set up the project with bass as a composition tool. The thing with Jumpstarted Plowhards, Todd is actually playing to the actual bass that I recorded. I recorded 15 songs. I said, now you play guitar and sing. The only thing I ask you to do is use a different drummer for each tune. Now, a lot of people can't tell there's different drummers. Well, as long as you engineer them in the same place, you're going to sound in the same ballpark. But to get that many drummers, was he actually bringing people into his studio or was he sending it out and asking various drummers to contribute remotely? He's bringing them into the studio. Four of the guys I've worked with, George Hurley, Nick Aguilar, Raul Morales, Jerry Trevitich. So they played to my bass before. But the way Todd put the guitar and singing, he made all that stuff up based on my song compositions with bass only. I thought he did really a good job. Yeah. So the one we're going to hear to say goodbye here is, yay, we're going to learn to fall. Yeah, we're going to learn to fall. All right. Any comments about that one in particular? This is just one of the ones that stuck out to me. One of the catchier ones. He had me talk a little bit on this one. It's a spot where he's playing, the guitar's kind of muffled, and I'm seeing some stuff under my breath. He really gave these tunes character. He really did. I'm really proud of him. This is the first of five. We're doing five, eight song, 12-inch 45s. I got another 25 to write, but it's just an interesting process. You know, I went on tour with Missing Man and Toys That Kill. I had him come on stage and play this Blue Oyster Cult song with us, The Red and the Black, and it came to me, you know what, I should try this on Todd, give him some bass and see what he does with it. Because he's got his own kind of songwriting style and stuff, and it might be interesting to see how they're mixed together. Well, it's cool that you're doing projects like this that take a relatively small amount of time from you. So that there's just so many different things. If you know, folks should just go look at your blog posts in reverse chronological order at MikeWatt.com that you're linking to all these various things. I was, I was listening to The Island, which has some of your beat poetry. That's an internet collaboration. When I'm doing projects, I don't want them to be reruns or the same things. I want them all to have something different, you know? So especially like something with Todd here, where he throws so much of himself into it, that automatically is going to make it different than when I collaborate with Nels Klein or I play with uh, Raul Morales and Tom Watson. I'd be making the same proj over and over with just different faces. Do you and some of your tours, like I know like for a while Bob Mould wouldn't even play old stuff because it's insulting to accomplished musicians to have to learn they should only play the stuff that they wrote the parts on like are do you encourage sort of reinterpretation of the old songs of yeah drummer ad or, or is like no that's kind of the way the song is they probably just learn it more or less that way i'm gonna have the missing men do one of these plow hard songs and we've changed it i think it's okay to change stuff a top 40 band yeah you're trying to recreate it be a tape recorder that's kind of boring. <laughs> well, it's more like if you're Sting, then it's not just it's okay to change it, but 
what is the point if you don't change it? Like you better use the new group that you've got there and let them flex their muscles and make it a fundamentally new thing. Yeah, on this tour, I'll be doing some songs I wrote during the Minuteman days, and it don't sound like Minuteman because it's Tom Watson at Gagular. Yeah, and I think that's okay. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for doing this. Mark, thank you big time for asking me stuff I don't usually get asked. All right, so here's, yeah, we're going to learn to fall, jumpstart plowhards, check it out. Thanks so much to Mike Watt. That is an interview that I was trying to get for a long time. I highly recommend the We Jam Econo documentary about the Minutemen that he talks about. I will link to that from the blog post at DickieLeeExaminedMusic.com. And remember, you can get information on all of his varied projects at MikeWatt.com. I also want to recommend his radio show. You can find it on Apple Podcasts and other places the Watt from Pedro show. So he does interviews, he plays music. It's an actual long form radio show. It's very funny that Mike is so verbose and yet we're able to fit more music in this episode without it being a particularly long one. I had planned the normal three discussion songs with Boilerman being the oldest one, thinking that Mike was probably sick of talking about the Minutemen, but he suggested adding that extra one. So I'm very glad we got to do that. And of course, as Mike alluded, his recent spate of projects is very, very wide. There's some jazz, there's some kind of spoken word poetry stuff. And excitingly, Mike became the bass player for Iggy Pop's band, The Stooges, in its reformed state for a while. So you might want to check that out. My next guest is Guy Sigsworth. He's a famed producer and co-writer. He's done things with Bjork, with Alanis Morissette, even with Madonna and Britney Spears. His first big hit was Seal's song, Crazy. So that cool synth bed under Seal's voice, that's all him. That is but one of many great interviews I've got in the bag already. I hope you are subscribed to this podcast at its own feed and not just occasionally listening to the episodes that you see in the Partial Examined Life feed. So you can do that at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com and you can also follow us through our Facebook page and of course support the podcast 
Get an ad-free feed. Get bonus content for many of the older episodes at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I hope you're having a wonderful day. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Linton Meyer signing off.